This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by Reed Dent to finish our examination of the sixth chapter of John and attempt to bring some closure to this challenging portion of the text. Reed Dent is here to save the day. Well, that's a big ask. Um, <laughs> After last episode. Just, well, <laughs> After 2,000 years of wrestling with this passage. Right, exactly right. When I signed up for this portion to be my first portion of John, there was like one kind of bit at the end, which I think is where the discussion is going to land. But I was like, yeah, I want to talk about that. And then I started looking at the rest of the other, you know, 40 verses that are here. And I was like, why did I sign up for this? Because... I do not understand. And especially listening to the very awesome stuff that everybody else has been uh, bringing to the table. And then I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I guess my only response can be what the disciples or the people are saying that, uh, this is a, this is a hard saying. I don't, I don't know. So I don't know that there's going to be much closure or clarity. I, I was thrilled when you put your name on the document because, when I thought of John, this is one of the few passages that I was like, oh, man, I do not want to do that passage. And then <laughs> you picked it. And then when we started doing John, I've gotten multiple text messages or emails from folks like, man, what are you going to do with John 6? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. It was, it's Reed. And then Reed was like, hey, do you want to do it with me? And I'm like, gosh, dang it. <laughs> well, see, that was, yeah, because once I started looking at it, I was like, I don't know what to say about this. I'll just make Marty talk with me. <laughs> Well, um, here yeah, we well, are. At first, <laughs> at first, I thought you were about to say something nice about me there, Marty, when you were saying you were glad it was me. But <laughs> it's like that Spider-Man meme where the two Spider-Mans are pointing at each other. Yeah, no, no, no I, lo- I do love that. And, and pretty much, and I am looking forward to it. Um, not that I feel like I have to say something nice about Reed, but after last episode where we got to just kind of like honestly be like, man, who knows? We're just workshopping this. Like, this is kind of part B of that. And I do love where the conversation, I mean, because we were talking about today's conversation for a while. And uh, mm. I, yeah, I'm just excited about where I where I do think it will land. And don't get your hopes too much, you know, up too much about what landing means. But I do think I like float. where... Well, we're going to float in a general vicinity. Direction. Well, I don't know if it's worth saying. I, I, I haven't heard the conversation from the last from the first part of john yet so i may be we we may circle back around to some of that a little bit we'll see um do you think uh read the best way to do this is going to be to like kind of go we we do every verse so should we just go through like kind of every verse and just kind of talk about it and then and then reflect afterwards what do you think we should do yeah i think i think that's probably the way here uh just you know the the standard bema program of let's read some verses and the things that don't make a lot of sense or maybe that there is something to say, we can do some observing and then maybe we'll have something more substantial to say at the end. Maybe this one will just have more of the, I don't know what this means, but isn't this weird? Uh, more of that throughout the passage. Uh, but yeah, let's just see where it goes. Okay. We're starting where Brent, Brent Billings, where are we starting? Well, so I think we'll pick up the context of, uh, we'll start in verse 25, but I think I'm going to pick up some context. So, okay. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right. And then, uh, end of the day, the disciples go down to the lake. They get on a boat. They don't have Jesus with them. Big storm comes up. Jesus walks on the water. Storm goes away. They're immediately at the other shore. 
then the next day the crowd is like, Hey, only one boat left and Jesus wasn't on it. So what happened? And so they get all these other boats and, uh, then they go find them. So that's where we're at. So verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not w- wait. Can I stop you? Can I stop you there? I'm sorry. It's the, it is the Bama way that I'm so proud of you, Reed. That is, <laughs> man, I'm just beaming right now, man. This, well, this is, this is my first episode of this kind of format. So I'm just, you know, I'm putting my toe in, I'm testing it out. You, you nailed it. That's 10 out of 10. So, so, so when Jesus says you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Uh, I, I guess the thought that comes to my mind is, can you really separate those two things? Like, there, if there's a crowd of 5,000 people, are, like they, they, you can't separate the eating of the loaves from the seeing of the signs, right? Like, they, they saw the thing. So what is Jesus, I don't know, I guess just what is Jesus getting at here? Is, is, and is it is it right? Is it fair? Like, if you've got a whole crowd of 5,000 people... Are you chastising them like for for getting food in their bellies? And wasn't that Jesus kind of concern anyway that he, that they would have something to eat? I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about about that? About because I think the typical reading here is like Jesus is saying like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter that you were hungry. Like you just need to like, well, you know, for the food that it endures to eternal life. Sorry, Brent, I cut you off too early don't work for the food that perishes. Like it, it just seems a little bit weird to me that Jesus is like setting them up with this huge sign to fill their bellies and then saying, yeah, but don't, don't, don't work for that. Like, don't worry about that. But here's this other spiritual thing. Does my confusion make any sense there? Absolutely. And I think it leads to what I feel like, because when Jesus starts to talk, I, based on like, as opposed to last week's episode, Jesus is going to have this, like this big monologue right here, and I feel like I can at least start to pull some—I don't know—trusting the words of Jesus. There, I can at least start to get my handle on what Jesus's teaching points are. And I think this is one of those things where the boat, like exactly what you said, on the surface, what he says doesn't make any sense. You can't really pull those two things apart. I look at what they're going to say immediately after. I look at what they've been saying before. They have been asking for signs. They're going to ask for a sign. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not here for the sign. You're here. So then I'm like, okay, so that's not that's not immediately on the surface. I don't know if I want to say accurate. So Jesus seems to be saying that there is like something, not what's on the surface, but there, there's something deeper going on here, that there is um, like there you are not and when i think back to the episodes we've even had like going through john and listening to some other thoughts like i'm really 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 starting to believe that one of the things that john is doing is making a distinction between the earthly minded listener and the heavenly minded listener the one born from below and the one born from above and i feel like he's continuing to say yeah 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 you're talking about signs but what you really want is like this earthly sustenance. Like you want something that makes sense here in this space. Like your your concern is about the food you ate. You just want, like even when you ask for a sign, what you want is like 
earthly sustenance, earthly satisfaction, earthly deliverance, and I'm here to talk to you about heavenly things, uh, deeper things, other things. And yeah, I think I think that's just one of the things that's hard about that for me, though, is that it it quickly gets like, or I don't know, quickly, but it can get into that territory of like. Well, I, I mean, a lot of the like theological ideas and like the emphasis that Baymon we try to say is that there is like a lot of overlap between heavenly and earthly things, that it's not just like pie in the sky, head in the clouds, you know, like don't just think about those things, but there is also like there is always an overlapping earthly component to it. You know what I mean? So I just want to be careful to avoid like and I, I can't speak for John here, but for us, like it gets too easy to disregard earthly things altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say there's a, like, yeah, we want to avoid the Gnostic dualism of having to pick one or the other. And John is not saying one at the expense of the other, one at the rejection of the other, but that but that you're not going, like with the woman at the well, you're not going far enough with your desires. You have yeah, earthly yeah, yeah. desires, but you actually need to go further with them because there's even greater, more transcendent, even more real realities about them. So it's not either heavenly or earthly, but when all you can see is the earthly, John's saying, open up your eyes. Jesus may be saying, open up your eyes to the things that are, you know, and I think you even pointed out earlier, lift it, he lifted up his eyes. Um, right. That whole concept, which seems to show up throughout John. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not like, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves to the exclusion, but it's almost like you're, it's almost like I'm hearing, uh, you're seeking me only because you ate your fill of the loaves where it's like, because you ate your fill, but then going on to, you know, this, this other thing. Otherwise, why would he have given them the loaves in the first place? Yeah. You don't want the implications of. Like you, you love the immediacy of what you're experiencing with me, but you don't want the implications of what this means mm. on a much bigger level. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going, Brett. <laughs> so, as we enter this recording, Reed has the fifth longest episode of the Bama podcast, and I'm, I'm seeing the trajectory in my mind. <laughs> Where he shoots yeah, right. Yeah, right, right back watch up to this. the top. Watch, watch how many verses you're going to read without an interruption. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> also, by the way, classic, classic Baymont move to interrupt me before I get to the portion of scripture that you actually need to talk about what you're talking about. <laughs> A hallmark, hallmark feature. Okay, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that... Okay, so let's stop there. Uh -huh. I'm just yep. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Which I, I find, uh, uh, you know, thinking back to the conversation we've now been having kind of since Josh's John 3 episode, I find it interesting that he says, believe in 
Let's see, what does he say here exactly? Um, Believe in him who he has sent, which obviously Jesus implications. But now every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, is there like firstborn son of, you know, is it Israel implications? And and they're like, well, okay, give us a sign. We might believe you. But then their immediate connection is to, again, the Exodus story and their forefathers and Israel eating man in the wilderness. So again, I see that connection between what Jesus is doing and what God has taught his people and called his people to in the Exodus narrative. I find that to be very interesting. And apparently the Greek language is incredibly uh, vague. It says, it says in Greek to believe in the one whom that one sent. Ah. Like there's no direct Uh reference to anyone. Yep. Yeah. Which also feels just like that off the cuff feels like a very exodus type thing too like there are times in exodus where the pronouns get confusing and you don't know like are we talking about moses are we talking about god who's doing the what who's the subject who's the object um but yeah there's there's very clearly uh a continued exodus parallel here and that's why i was really excited when i heard josh's episode on uh on john 3 because uh, it kind of confirmed for me, like, okay, it's not it's not crazy to be seeing these things and to continue the parallels. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're talking about the manna in the wilderness. Kind of, kind of what I hear, and you can check me if if you guys think that I'm off here. But kind of what I hear the people in Jesus dialoguing about. So in in verse 32, when Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread." So just before that the people are asking for the sign. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Which again, I'm confused here because did we not just have like the sign of the feeding of the crowds? Right. Uh, Right. What, what are they, what, what, what more are they looking for? What work do you perform? Uh, And so I don't know when they say our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, like, <laughs> I mean, certainly they're not saying like, yeah, big deal. You fed the crowds. Like, look, we got red in the wilderness. That's n- that's no big thing. Like, I-, I don't know if that's what they're thinking or if they're thinking. So when Jesus reply, it wasn't Moses. Are they thinking like somehow Moses was responsible for the bread in the wilderness and Jesus is then correcting them to say, no, 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 it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. It was my father who gives you the bread, like what? What do you, what are you hearing as the tone of the the back and forth here? Yeah, I think it's a, another great thing to point out, and I I wonder if I'm I'm with you. I don't think what they're saying is is we just want another sign. Can you can you give us even more bread? That was really cool. Um, like that's a great party trick. I think what they're saying is we get a hunch of what you are claiming. Like we are smelling what you're cooking, and. Are you trying? Like I think they're they're goading him, and in the next paragraph, Jesus is going to be like, "Yep, I'll double down on that." Like I feel like they're going, "Well, well, I mean, we have some pretty great stories in our history, like with Moses and manna." And Jesus is like, "Yeah, yeah, but but Moses was never like it was God." And I'm talking to you about God, and I'm talking to you about my connection in the past few chapters. Jesus like keeps drawing his connection with the Father, like. No, no, no. This is this is even bigger than that. And yes, Moses and the and the bread and the man in the wilderness was a huge deal. But this is even bigger than that. And I think they're picking up on it and trying to figure out where are you going, Jesus? Are you are you making claims about yourself? 
to which that next verse is going to clear that up even more. Right. Well, and Jesus is leading them there in verse 33 uh, that Brent read. Uh, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus is like leading them there, there but he hasn't yet just come out and stated like, hey, it's me. And they say, give us this bread always. And then very similar, by the way, to what the Samaritan woman says. Mm. Give me give me this water that I will never thirst. That again. I will never thirst. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, I mean, I, I haven't read it yet. And, uh, you know, but Jesus is about to go into an I am statement. And even without having Moses already in mind, if you say an I am statement, you're going to think of that time frame. But to have Moses in mind and then for Jesus to pull out an I am statement sure uh, mm-hmm. should be a big slap across the face to them, I would think. Like, hey, are, are you paying attention? <laughs> yeah, especially when connected to Torah. So then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Which I think is interesting, because... Later in the passage, he drives most of them away by what he says. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that a, a little later. But, I mean, it always um, kind of impresses and also confounds me that Jesus, like, the crowds leave and then he even seems to goad the disciples a little bit. Like, are you going to leave too? Uh, a- anyway, so, but but you could also say that, you know, later when... When the crowds leave, you know, is that Jesus Jesus isn't really casting them out, maybe. It's it's more like they themselves are choosing to leave. And so it's like, I I will never cast you out. And yet what I am saying, what I am about, what I am asking, where I'm asking you to go with me, like you may decide that that's too much for you. Ah, yeah. And then we're back to that same idea. Like you you want this kind of bread. You don't actually want the kind of bread that I'm talking about. Like, yeah, you're going to choose to not be here because that's not actually what you're wanting to put in your spiritual shopping cart. You are trying to look for another good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, and even and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but uh, when they in verse 34, when they say, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Like I was thinking back through the manna story in Exodus 16, because that's what's being alluded to here. Yep. And one of the primary things in that story is that the people are told very explicitly, you have to gather this up every single day. You don't get to store it over for later. Yep. You know? Yep. And so I, I don't know if there's when they say give us this bread always, it's like a hey, give it to us so that it will never run out. And yet the nature of the manna in the wilderness is that it does run out. It doesn't keep. It's something that you have to keep coming back to. And in Exodus, it's you know, God is is testing the people to see if they will obey. And I think he's also creating a dependence, you know, so that they they have to keep continually seek come, ask, knock, that kind of thing. Uh, and so, yeah, Jesus, it, it's interesting that he says, whoever believes to me shall not hunger. And yet, if you have the Exodus story in mind, it's like, yeah, you're not going to hunger, but that doesn't mean it's like a one-stop, right, like, right. And, and now I'm full forever. Right. It's like, I almost hear him, it's like, you would need to say, not whoever comes to me once, but whoever comes to me and keeps coming to me right. shall, not, shall not hunger. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. We move on then. Yeah, go ahead. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, 
but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Okay, let me, let me, sorry, let me stop you there. You don't have to apologize. This is the way. I probably, well, I'm just, this is the way. Uh, I am just nicer <laughs> than Marty, so I don't, I like to still have some manners. Um, <laughs> so grumbling. Okay. Uh, the Jews grumbled about him uh, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And uh, then they even say, isn't this Jesus? Like, we know who his mom and dad are. How is he saying I've come down from heaven, which is, you know, uh, what Marty was saying before, John further drawing the divide between the heavenly and the earthly things where they can only because it's not that Jesus is not the son of Joseph and uh, and Mary. Right. It's it's not that he's not that, but there is more to it than that. And the him claiming I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That's the thing that they cannot accept. And I just, the, the word grumble there, uh, that is, that is the word that's used. I don't know about like, you know, Septuagint usage and all that kind of stuff for Exodus, but the, the, I would guess that it's probably the same or similar, but one of the hallmarks of the people in the Exodus story who are delivered out of Egypt is their constant grumbling. That's the word that's used over and over. And I want to just like uh, speculate a little bit here. So if we can go back and this is where I don't know everything that you guys said before. Um, But Marty and I were actually having a a little side conversation about this before when it comes to crossing the lake and where are they starting from and where are they going? And the, the, uh, the, I guess the trajectory gets very kind of confusing to me. Uh, I don't know if you guys were able to kind of shed any light on exactly where things are happening, where people are going. Um, did you guys talk about that in, in your first part of chapter six? No, we, we, we pointed out that it's so odd and, and appears to be done so deliberately because it is the exact opposite, uh, directly Mm. opposite of the synoptics. And so we pointed it out. We didn't necessarily, and the thought, the thoughts I did have were kind of coming from, our conversation and I, I was wanting the rest mm. of chapter six to be like, man, this feels very exodusy. And I have somebody right. and I hate the word lake in the NIV because I want to hear the word sea. Like they're crossing the sea. And if I'm thinking Exodus, like hello, but nonetheless. Yeah, well, so you have the sea, right? Um and you have uh the earlier bits about Jesus walking out on the water. It's windy. Uh you have now on the far side of the sea, you have people uh 
there's a discourse about the manna and the bread, and you now have people grumbling. The Jews are grumbling about Jesus, just as the Israelites did, you know, in the wilderness. They were grumbling about their situation. In 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 Exodus, they have the bread, right? But their grumbling is like, yeah, but we wanted, you know, when we were in Egypt, at least we had our fill of meat to eat. You know, we had a place to sleep. It was better back there in Egypt is the essence of their grumbling, right? So, and, so the first mention in the Septuagint of this grumble word is Numbers 11. Okay. Which they're complaining about how they're having a hard time hearing from the Lord. And then immediately after that, they're like, hey, uh, what about getting some meat too? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. So. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. How about getting some meat? How about we go back to Egypt and get some meat there? You know, that's 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 the spirit that they're saying, like, well, thanks for this uh, new freedom here, God. But honestly, it's a little terrifying because we don't know where our food is going to come from. And honestly, it's a little uncomfortable because we don't have a place to sleep and now we're wandering. And you almost hear the people saying, like, yeah, you know... I guess if we have to accept slavery, we'll do it because at least there we were taken care of. And so this is where, uh, Marty, our conversation just on John's switching up of the the whole lake or sea traveling situation, where in in John's gospel, uh, we're going to Capernaum, right? Yep. Yep. And 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 so. You know, this is where I, maybe it's maybe it's speculating, but but stick with me a little bit. So if they're going to Capernaum, which is uh, this is a Pharisaical center, right? We think Capernaum, we think Pharisees. Absolutely. The hub of Pharisaical greatness. And so I wonder if there is something that we can pick up on that is the people are wanting to go. Uh, it's almost like they're crossing the sea wanting to go backwards like they're wanting to like if we think of the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees uh we think about josh's conversation yeah. uh about jesus and nicodemus in yeah. john yep. 3 yep. right and here's this way of righteousness that is you know tied to these particular like rules and specific rules about what it means to be the people of god and keep torah and all of that and uh, th- there is then contrasted with that, this way of the spirit, which isn't quite as nice and neat, right? As like, it, what's going to guide you in the way of the spirit? Like, it's not going to be all of the, uh, what's it called? The halakha, like all of the, yep. Yep. the different rulings and, you know, all the interpretations. It's going to be something else, the way of the spirit. Uh, which you know, I as as Christians and thinking about even Jesus's later discourses, like it's it it comes down to this rule of love, right? If that's going to be what's guiding you, man, that's a lot more terrifying. Uh, and yet that's also like where where anything actually happens, where any change actually happens, where any good actually comes from. Uh, and so I don't know, I I just kind of hear maybe the people are wanting to go backwards and they're seeking Jesus there. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I guess that's kind of where my thought ends. I mean, it is true that they find Jesus there. Like he is there teaching in Capernaum. Um, but you know, maybe I, I don't know where else to go with that. I don't know if you had any further thoughts on that, Marty or Brent. Well, I, yeah, there's, there's definitely an option where they're crossing the sea, but then crossing back over the sea. So there's, I definitely can see 
a motif where they're going back to Egypt, uh, 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 um, a religious Egypt, a legalistic Egypt, the Nicodemus's Egypt that Jesus was inviting him. Like, no, man, you gotta, you gotta leave this. You gotta go. You gotta go on a new Exodus. You gotta. Mm-hmm. What you're looking for does not lie behind you, which is what Josh was pointing out. How oh, we already know all this. We've already gone through this. And Jesus is saying, "There's more. There's further. Like there's a new frontier. You got to keep pressing into. And it's not what. So do we have them going back? I, I now all of a sudden am wrestling with where the conversation is going to head in the next paragraph and mm. Brent's observation about first mention, mm. which has them asking for meat. I'm wondering, I'm also like wrestling with another thought going, going kind of the other direction, which okay. doesn't necessarily uh, deal with the lake issue, the conundrum of which side of the lake they're on. But are they like, sometimes we always give a, like make the crowds like really stupid. And if these are educated crowds, are they actually going somewhere? Are they goading Jesus and Jesus is responding in kind are they actually saying, well, we had we had manna, but we also had meat, Jesus. Are you like, are they asking Jesus and just like, no, 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 this bread isn't like that bread. This bread's good enough. And they're like, or what about the meat, Jesus? <laughs> and I wonder if that's going to have like implications for what he's going to end up saying next, which is going to be the thunderbolt. But oh, well, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think I see where you're going. Reed, we're figuring it out in real time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say as well. Uh, okay. Well, let's keep going. Let's hear what he's going to say then. Uh, let's see. I don't remember exactly where I stopped. Uh, no one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. Very truly. I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which I would say, I I would imagine many of us are sharply arguing about that. Yes, yes, yes. Keep going a little bit further. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Okay. Which I'd love to give just a passing comment, uh, just to get this out of the way, before we start diving into the interpretation of this, and everybody's like, but what about the Lord's Supper? Like, Yes, yeah. Yes, obviously, I think there's an obvious wink, wink, nudge, nudge, from from John here as he as he says as he tells this whole story I think there are overtones to all of that but our more immediate con- like wrestling match is when Jesus was in that synagogue in Capernaum that's not in play yet and so right. what is Jesus teaching in this moment is he just like blindly talking about the Lord's Supper in the future 
very unlikely that's what he's that he's doing something else that we're wrestling with. So I don't want to like right not acknowledge the Lord's Supper and have everybody be like, man, you people are idiots. He's talking about communion. I mean, obviously there are those overtones, but that is not the hermeneutical center of gravity here. Yeah. So, you know, something that probably a lot of listeners are familiar with is, you know, you have different levels at which you interpret. And so there is what's called the discourse level, which is to say, John, with his audience, late first century, sure. the, ch- the church there, like at a discourse level, we can read it as somehow maybe it's about the practice of the Lord's Supper and what the essence of that is and and whatever but at the actual like the immediate narrative level that is definitely like not what jesus has in mind here or what he's talking to the jews about because as you said he said these things in the synagogue as he taught at capernaum so that's that's not something that that people are going to be concerned with and we do have a lot of some uh some similar themes like we're we were in the context of passover as we saw in the beginning of john Mm -hmm. 6 we have you know the general idea of the exodus Mm -hmm. happening you know so so there are overlapping themes no doubt yeah and and just to deal with the to deal with the immediacy of what he's saying in the synagogue and then i'll see where reed wants to riff on this but this is such a crazy idea in its synagogue Jewish context. Um, one of the people we've talked about before, David Flusser, Orthodox Jewish scholar, Hebrew University. He was in the same kind of um, era and circle of scholars as Shmuel Safrai, um, that whole crew that was at Hebrew U two or three decades ago, considered some of the, the preeminent Jesus scholars that weren't coming from a Christian perspective, but a Jewish perspective. Flusser said, and I don't agree with this, but I do love the veracity of what he said. He said, there is no way Jesus taught this in a synagogue in Capernaum. John is making this story up later, putting it in his gospel for his purposes. But this is so, uh, I, I, I think I'm going to use the term like in the Jewish world, this idea on a concrete level is so blasphemous mm-hmm. that you would eat flesh and drink blood. Mm-hmm. Flusser said this, there is no way he taught this, which I think I, I disagree on a fundamental level for, with that because I think the passage reflects that everybody leaves, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it gives us the gravity of what he like. And everybody's like, Oh, well, this is conceptual. Listen, this is, this is, this is a blasphemous metaphor in the abstract. It's such a crazy idea that, that Jewish scholars say that he just didn't teach it. No, no Jew would teach this. It's, it's crazy. And I love that the reaction today in the late 20th century is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. (laughs) There's no way he taught that. That's craziness, which is exactly what happens in the story in front of us. Yeah, I mean, my my note here in my documents where Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, my note just says, Torah says no, Jesus— uh, you, you, that's, the, it's that's gotta, exactly it's, right. Right? It, it's got to be like one of the, the most repeated prohibitions in Torah is, you know, you're not you're not supposed to eat anything or consume anything that has the blood in it. Right. Am I that, right? Uh, the the lifeblood yep. uh, repeated over and over again in multiple books of Torah. Do not consume blood. Yep. And it seems like Jesus repeated it just as many times in this passage. 
Like, hey, I, I sure. know you've heard this a bunch of times, but I'm about to tell you a bunch of times. Yep. No, seriously, eat my flesh, drink my like. So, I mean, can we also uh, it, it's probably helpful for us, uh, people like me who are in 2022 and I'm not Jewish and I don't follow Torah. Uh, but it's probably important for us to acknowledge like I'm also really uncomfortable here. Uh, the, it's not like, uh, at, I, I can read it as a non-Jew and be like, yeah, so whatever, no big deal. Like any person telling you eat my flesh, drink my blood, just, just that plainly, like that's, that's crazy talk. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, Derek, who I, who I work with at the campus ministry here, uh, he, he gave a sermon one time and he actually made a lot of people really upset because he was like, look. Can we acknowledge that at some level, like what Jesus is saying here and then claims that certain like cult leader figures make, they are uh, not that not that Jesus is a cult leader, but that they are similarly uh, absurd and shocking and uh, grandiose. So, I, I yeah, I just I'm, I'm going to raise my hand and say, I don't exactly know what to do with all of this, especially if I'm not just wanting to skip to the communion reading. Uh, that it it makes me quite uncomfortable. However, Marty, to bring us back to, I think what you were maybe getting at with so with the numbers thing, uh, like uh, is this what it, stop me if I'm not on your trail? Well, speaking of numbers, so he says, "Eat my flesh five times." Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So he's like, "Whatever you hear in Torah, I got you covered." Which I made the claim in our original John episode that the "I am" statements, "I am the bread of life," is a statement about Torah. So he could be reflecting on that. But yeah, Reed, I, I think, I, I yes, I mean, I, if they are hinting at meat, Jesus right. is like, "Listen, this bread is enough." If you really want meat, just like your ancestors, which wasn't a great move in Numbers eleven, by the way, if you know how that story goes. <laughs> But if that's really want, where you want to go, I'm that too. Like, go ahead, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Like that, I, I for the first time, literally because of Mr. Brent's Septuagint work there, first mention work, um, man, for the first time that statement, that bridge maybe makes sense. Mm. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I'm just, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink yeah <laughs> there's not not a lot of wiggle room there <laughs> i don't know man I, I i'm really curious what jesus has in mind to say true food and true drink um yep yeah i don't know yeah no and i it, it, yeah, and, uh, i think we're headed here but we're not, i don't know if we're supposed to be able to resolve this i mean if the crowds couldn't it's it wasn't easy for them and yeah. all their jewish knowledge and all their understanding of torah and Ramez and clever rabbinical judo they didn't get it the disciples don't get it when this story is over like they they're like yep we don't get it either and we um you know we yep i I mean yeah yeah so so let's go ahead i mean that just leads us right into the the next bit here starting in verse 60 on hearing it many of his disciples said this is a hard teaching who can accept it aware that his disciples were grumbling about this jesus said to them does this offend you Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me 
unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Okay, so let's let's jump in there for a second. Uh, and I just kind of want to double down on what Marty was saying. Uh, when When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Uh, and I think the temptation for us is to try to iron out all of these things, right? To, to try to take Jesus saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and to package it neatly and trace out Septuagint, all of this and that, right? And then with the benefit of, you know, Bible Gateway and 2000 years and all of that, we, we will now like neatly understand exactly what Jesus meant. That's the temptation for us. Um, there's a, there's, this is, this is relevant. There's a, there's a guy named Meyer Sternberg and he wrote a book called the poetics of biblical narrative. And in it, he talks about the drama of reading as the reader. And he said, one of the reasons why the Hebrew scriptures are written the way they are uh, intentionally to like, well, he uses the word, I think, obfuscate, which is like to make things less clear. One of the reasons why they're written in such a way as to make things unclear, to leave questions, to not give all the detail is because it's wanting to instill in you, the reader or the hearer, uh, a deep sense that you don't know. Like you actually, you, God is the one who knows and you are the one who doesn't know that you are limited in your understanding. Uh, and that leaves, of course, all as we've talked about many times in Bema, there's all kinds of beautiful room then to wrestle, right? And to say, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And there is some relief that we don't have to have all of the answers. And yet also, so when I'm, so when I'm hearing Jesus say this, uh, I am like, I don't want to be for a second. I don't want to be 2022 read like on my computer in my living room. I am also invited to be a disciple and to say, okay, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And can I be okay with like being in that space right there for, for who knows how long, right? Maybe mm. like maybe forever, maybe generations mm. will continue to go by and we will always be confronted with, yeah, this is a hard saying who, who can listen to it. You know, and then, and then Jesus goes on. Do you take offense of this at this? W what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which I don't claim to know exactly what Jesus means there. Although, of course, we think of like the ascension in the Gospels, uh, or even I think back to like the prologue in John, talking about the Word and like where that has kind of come from, right? And so, if you were to see that, so, so Jesus goes even further. Like, if you don't understand this. What about all of these other things? And do you think that you also understand those or that you will? Uh, and so it's always like this gut check for me that whenever I'm entering into uh, a conversation about the words, the teaching of Jesus, I need to be starting from a place of deep reverence and humility for the mystery. And I need to be okay with letting it remain a mystery when my hour-long Bible study session is over, that I don't have to have it all kind of ironed out. Un yeah, unbelievably well said. It's a very good point, and I love it. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay, let's let's go to let's 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 read the last few verses that we have, and then we can we can take the discussion from there. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him. 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Bum, 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 to quote L, she does that noise. She makes that music uh, a lot. <laughs> she makes she all the music. So dramatic. Bum, bum, bum. She also likes, yeah, she's got a very sing-songy way. Good job. L, I'm a fan of yours. Um, okay. So <laughs> you heard it here first, so, Reed. <laughs> I'm a fan of L's. We haven't got to meet yet, but man, big fan. Okay. So I find, I find this whole chunk, uh, where they start to turn away. Mm. Interesting because there's a lot of like, sometimes it's very clear. Jesus is talking to the 12, but in that earlier section, it's like, he knows who's going to betray him later. Is he, is he talking about the larger crowd at that point? Hmm. Because he doesn't really know any of them. They just all showed up and got some food and then followed him across right. the lake. Well, I, actually, that's that's a great point because in in uh, right before it says he knew he would betray him, what he says is there are some of you who do not believe, which does not sound like the same kind of Judas betrayal, right? Right. Uh, and so the crowds are the ones who are unbelieving. He's even been talking to them the whole time about their unbelief. Uh, why it would like, so I think you're onto something, why that would amount to a betrayal. I mean, that seems like a pretty severe word. And it it mirrors so much of the early chapters in at least two different places where we read things like, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them Mm -hmm. for he knew what was in all people. Like, like Jesus does have this, I know where the human heart is. I know what the human heart wants. I know what you're asking for, and you ask for bread and signs and all of this stuff, and I'm not getting swept up in that because I know what I'm here for, and I'm inviting you into that. I am not letting you invite me into your agenda. You're being invited the other direction. Yeah. And there is – it's just that this language maybe starts to take a turn for even the more um, dramatic, the more mm. – uh, it's got a, it's got a, it's got more teeth to it. Betrayal yeah. versus the way it's been phrased in earlier chapters. Yeah. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I think that I, I don't know. I, I guess in my life, and I would guess in a lot of people's lives, like we all have come up against something that Jesus says or asks, and it feels like too much. Uh, it feels too difficult or too confusing or even offensive. Uh, and it is enough, you know, to cause anyone to, to walk away. Um, not that I would encourage everybody to just, you know, walk away at that point. But I guess it helps me be a little understanding of that. And then just really what, blows my mind and I, and I have a really hard time with this when Jesus turns to the 12 and says do you want to go away as well I don't know how to hear Jesus saying that like I'm really wanting to know his tone and is he saying it in a way that's like he's feeling betrayed he's feeling left alone and there is a kind of sadness or even like a a longing when he asks like do you want to go away as well and almost like saying 
like, tell me you don't want to leave me. Uh, and then I could also hear it being Jesus, like testing them or, uh, like goading them to say, well, aren't you going to leave too? You know, in which case, and that's usually how I tend to hear him. In which case I always say like, Jesus is probably your worst choice, uh, to hire as a church growth consultant. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because a lot of us who work in ministries and churches, it's really easy to get uh, obsessed with making sure that just the crowds stay big and they stay present and they keep coming to services and they come to my events and they come to my small groups and stuff. Um, And maybe the temptation that we run is if that's our if that's our aim, then we're going to smooth out the things that Jesus says to make them completely understandable and to make them completely palatable. Uh, and so we want to have some nice, succinct explanation for eat my flesh and drink my blood because we don't want anybody to leave. Whereas Jesus is like, yeah, are you going to leave too? Like, I'm I'm not – because what Jesus doesn't do is try to explain himself, right? Like, the, it's not like when the crowds start to leave, Jesus doesn't go, wait, 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 wait. You misheard me. Like, you mis- – or you didn't understand me. Like, here's here's what I really wanted to say. They just go. And then he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? Uh, I've said it before, Jesus uh, is a bad preacher by our preaching standards, uh, thinking about the parables when he says, yeah, I'm saying this so that you won't understand. Okay, like Jesus got an F in preaching because our preaching program says, no, you have to make things like as clear as possible and have a really good application. Uh, Jesus also is now a bad church growth person. Don't hire him on your church staff, anyone. So here I am like a broken record with the NET footnotes, uh, but they are helpful. Uh, apparently there's a prefix in the Greek um, that when you when you put it on a phrase, it anticipates a negative answer. Oh, okay. So Jesus is not expecting them to say that they want to go away. Okay. But I think he's just affirming that they are sticking with him because mm. in the midst of seeing 5,000 people turn around and walk away, he's like, are you guys having second thoughts now? Mm. Just want to make sure you're still with me. Yeah, he's like goading the positive response out of them. Like he turns to them and says, I know you are with me. Are are you sure? Like, yeah. Yep. I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And yet still there is the other aspect that is the teaching drove all of the rest of the people away. And Jesus doesn't seem too concerned with trying to stop them or make sure that they turn around and come back. Right. Right. This is about the agenda he has with his disciples, and he's asking them for that gut check moment. Like, mm. and he, he says, I know you get this, and I know you see it. This is that moment to make sure you're in before we keep going. Uh, Yeah. So I want to go on then with um, Simon Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, And I can't help but hear this as uh, a contrast uh, to it's John five, which you guys have also had a conversation on already uh, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their, their search of the scriptures. And he says, you search the scriptures uh, because you think that in them you have eternal life, which also, Marty, you said can be read a different way, right? It can be read at the imperative, like search the scriptures because in them they'll have eternal life and they'll point to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can read it either way. Either way. So, but, but if we hear it as saying, you know, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Right, 
Right. So I can't help but hear a contrast or a relationship set up between those Pharisees and these disciples. The Pharisees uh, who are searching scriptures, looking for eternal life, not not coming to Jesus for that life. And then you have the disciples who, on the heels of a very confusing, very difficult teaching, uh, when everybody's leaving because they can't accept whatever that teaching is saying, you have the disciples, you have Peter saying, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, uh, and we've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, I, I guess where I always want to go with this is is to think about, like, what is the difference between these two groups or somebody who would find themselves in one of these two groups? Like, what's what's the difference— um, between somebody who is searching, scouring um, scriptures, or maybe they're searching and scouring doctrines or philosophies or theologies or whatever for eternal life, not realizing that they point to Jesus. Uh, and and then the other person who says, well, where else am I going to go? Like you have the words of eternal life. And I hear in Peter, like a sort of, I almost like a... a a last resort, or maybe it's a first principle, or it's like an ultimate concern or a desperation that's like, well, we don't have any other options. Uh, and he doesn't say, like when he says, you have the words of eternal life, I don't hear him saying, yeah, and we get what you're saying about flesh and blood. Like, we understand that in a way that all of these other right. people, like, it's not like we're smarter than they are, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not smarter than the Pharisees. We're not smarter than the crowds who've turned away. There's, there's something else. And I, it's, it's so beautiful to me that it's so personal, uh, to who, to whom shall we go? Like we would be thrown out. We would have no one. We would be alone. Uh, you though have the words of eternal life. And it just makes me wonder, um, what have they seen? What have they experienced with him that, gets underneath all of that other stuff, right? It gets underneath all of the confusion. It gets underneath all of the, um, the like, discon... Dis it's their... What's the word I'm looking for? Disconcerting? It's disconcerting. Uh, disconcertment is definitely not a word. They're discontent? It's not just their discontent, though. It it's like that they are distressed, Right. That they would right. be distressed yep. because Jesus yep. is saying things and they're like, we don't have categories for this. Like we know, right. we know Torah. Torah right. says like, don't drink blood, don't eat flesh. And Jesus is now saying this and they don't necessarily know how to reconcile those things. And yet something about Jesus has drawn them in to say, well, where else are we going to go? You know what I'm saying? Actually, they've Marty experienced they've experienced the person of the Christ on some level. What you're what you're getting yes. at is they've had some experience. Yes. With something more transcendent than their understandings and explanations and degrees and education. Mm. Something else transcends that, and that's where they're going to put their their feet, their hope. Can I, uh, Marty, would you, uh, in the notes there, the thing from Heschel? So this is a, this is a, a small uh, excerpt from Heschel in a book called I Ask for Wonder, which is itself just kind of a compilation of various things he'd written. Um, but will you will you read that? We love Heschel here at the Bema podcast. Abraham Heschel, same one who wrote Sabbath all the way back in session one. Let's see here. God is not always silent, and man is not always blind. 
In every man's life, there are moments when there is a lifting of the veil at the horizon of the known, opening a sight of the eternal. Each of us has, at least once in his life, experienced the moment, the momentous, the momentous. How do I say that? Momentous, momentous reality of God. Darn Heschel always giving us words that are hard to say. <laughs> Each of us has once caught a glimpse of the beauty, peace, and power that flow through the souls of those who are devoted to Him. But such experiences are rare events. To some people, they are like shooting stars passing and unremembered and others they kindle a light that is never quenched mm. just everybody rewind that 10 times and listen to that quote over and over and over so so i hear him saying sometimes god is silent and sometimes man is blind but not always and everyone is afforded at least once he says some experience of God. Everyone has caught a glimpse. Everyone has experienced the peace, the power. And Heschel says those are rare events. And to some people, they're like shooting stars and they don't even remember them. And to others, it's this one thing that they hold on to for the rest of their lives. It becomes this light that is never quenched. And I mean, what comes to my mind here when I, when I think of that kind of an experience is, uh, is, Saul on the road to Damascus and the light, you know, that comes down and whatever that experience that he had was, that becomes this light that is never quenched. Or I don't know if you guys are familiar with Thomas Merton or if any of the listeners are. Uh, he's a 20th, no, yeah, 20th century American monk from Kentucky. And uh, he famously <laughs> talks about, that isn't is, that a weird that is a sequence a of words? <laughs> 20th century American monk from Kentucky who has this beautiful uh, writing about an experience he had in Louisville where he had this like weird mystic experience where suddenly he saw everybody like lit up. He's, he, he says he saw them as they were this brilliant light and he just loved them entirely, you know, and it's like this this experience that then formed his relationship with God and his relationship with monasticism, like for the rest of his life. And so sometimes there are things like that, right? And, and, and I, and I think the way that I hear that and in the conversations that I've had with people, it's like, I I don't know. Uh, I don't know that everybody does have that experience, right? Like, I I don't know that Heschel, maybe I'm misreading him. I, I do believe that everybody has an experience of God, but I don't know that they are like, that it it just conjures up this picture that's like I have to have some grandiose, indescribable experience, and that's even what the disciples must have had, right? Like they must have seen the shining light or the transfiguration or something. But I've never had that. Read Marty and Brent, and so like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. Do you do you feel that? Like, can you in your own lives like, are you able to name like here was this crazy powerful experience that I had, and I've held on to that ever since? Big question, I know. I can, I can definitely have. Uh, I love how Jonathan Martin said it in Prototype, where he talked about like everybody has this, um, this moment that he described as like an inner child, uh, mm. a little girl jumping on a trampoline or a little boy riding a bicycle, where you know if you go back there, you know before you matured and everything got weird and complicated, mm. you everybody goes back to this child 
like moment where you know mm. some somewhere deep beyond knowing knowing like you know mm. that you are loved um yeah and and i think that that's another way of wording this same thing there are definitely moments i i i think i hear it the same way you're hearing it read he talks about shooting stars mm. like everybody has these moments but for some they just pass and you don't catch them you don't you don't uh, see yeah. them and yeah. and they just pass by unremembered and uncatalogued and and yet others and i love that because shooting star is like big and awesome but it's it's momentary the other one is like a, it kindles a light that is never quenched oh that seems like something small uh, like i picture a a small little spark and a mm. candle that then gets like and and i yeah. know those things that are come true on. in <laughs> i know the things that are true in my life have come at the hands of great mentors and those people that i think have taken those sparks yeah and where i know i mean I, and i think there's yeah. when i hear you ask that question reed i hear the i hear the dance between two different moments the moments that i simply cannot understand and comprehend mm-hmm. which i have had i remember sitting in the living room of a home where a and i don't even i don't even have categories for it i think and i think that's literally what you're asking me about like yes i don't have cat there was a woman that was possessed by a demon i i i, I guys and that sounds I, I hate to even say that on the podcast because i don't know how to talk about it i don't know how to categorize it mm-hmm. i don't i don't i don't even want to tell the story because i feel like an idiot i just know what i experienced and i have nowhere to put that in my bible uh, college well so yeah 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 yeah. so so thomas merton when he's writing about his experience he says this line that i love so much he's like i saw them all this way and he's like i can't convince them of that and he says this line he says there is no way to tell everyone that they are all walking around shining like the sun like you can't tell people that they won't they'll right. be like what are you talking about you're crazy there's no right. rational explanation for it i mean i think of uh, an experience that I had going for a walk through the woods, uh, out by the lake. And I was suddenly in the middle of the woods on this path, just like completely stopped dead in my tracks. Like in a moment of felt like all I could do was kneel. And there was like this, 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 it sounds really late. This is how all these things go, right? It's like a, you had to be there kind of thing. Um, or it's like the joke that you have to explain and then it's not funny anymore where, where like I had this moment of being totally overwhelmed with the sense that like, all will be well, all manner will, all manner of thing will be well. In the end, God will be all in all. And it's like, I say that, and everybody listening on the podcast is still driving in their cars, and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever, that's a nice Bible verse, I've heard that before in a poem. And I'm like, for me, that shaped my whole way of looking at the entire world, and I had nothing else to do but just to live ever after that, right? I have to live in a way that's somehow responsible to that thing that happened to me. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Sorry, I, when you shared that, I just started thinking about some of my own stories, too. Yeah. Um, I can remember uh, when there was a time when I was in college, and uh, I can remember, like, my dad was really sick, mm-hmm. and I, like, we didn't know, like, I didn't know if my dad was going to die, and I can still remember standing on a deck and uh, our back patio, and uh, just without being able to explain it, absolutely feeling like embrace like Mm. it was a physiological spiritual experience like yes i i was i could feel again how do you talk about it i could feel god hugging me Mm. but i could yeah and i don't don't have any other labels or language for that 
Yeah. But as you tell that story, it's like, yep, yep, yep. Shooting stars. Yeah, man. Or, 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 or little lights that when mentors came around to talk about the love of God, I went, yeah, I know, I know what that is. And so when I had that experience in a living room, I can't explain that, but I'll, it's, <laughs> but yeah, I know the one who has the words of eternal you, life. Yeah. So where else would I go? I was going to say, you don't have to explain it. You can just point to it. Right. And, yep. and, and, but here's the thing. So a lot of Bama listeners are super into thinking kinds of things, right? And we want to make sense of things and we have these experiences and maybe after we're out of them, it's like, we want to, we want to explain them, which is, I don't think is necessarily a bad impulse. Um, there's a guy though named David Bentley Hart. He's like the smartest friggin' philosopher like in the world right now. And I was reading this book where he talks about, uh, and, and he's just spent like 60 pages explaining some like analytic philosophy about absolute being and contingent being and blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, at some point, um, our, our, uh, how, do, how does he say it? He, he says, at some point, our debate about these things becomes more of a distraction from the obvious than an aid to reflection, which is to say, like, wow. talking about things can be really good if it's aiding us in reflecting on what has happened rather than but but often what happens is it distracts us then from this obvious thing. You have the words of eternal life. Right. And, and he says, when we have these moments and i love that you use the word childlike marty because that's that's how he describes it too we have this childlike kind of wakefulness and it's not that we shouldn't write 60 pages of philosophy about it but he says that anything uh any of our meditations about them have to end where they begin they have to end back at that moment of wonder they have to end back at that moment of as he calls it sheer existential surprise uh, they any and he says any philosophy and I think you would add any like theology system any like like exegesis any whatever that is not ultimately responsible before what was revealed in that moment like on your deck or in your living room or in the woods anything that's not responsible before what is revealed there is merely childish and he means childish in the bad way you know uh, and I think that's a that's an incredibly important reminder for for me at least, because I'm that type, and probably for a lot of the Bema listeners. Oh, goodness. Which, okay, so we got to wrap this up because it's getting it's getting long. But I would, ah, I, there are so many stories, so many beautiful things that could be said about these kinds of uh, experiences. But I want to say maybe this as like kind of a final observation, maybe two things. One, if you're a person who hasn't had that moment on the deck or in the woods. Uh, maybe maybe you were laying out watching stars with your friend and they were the one who looked and saw and they were like, hey, did you see that? And you're like, oh, I missed it. I didn't see it. You know, um, There are other people who point to the way that we experience God. And I love Frederick Buechner. I'll talk about him endlessly. Or if you've ever read Ann Voskamp, she is like the, the Buechner female disciple reincarnation of him. Uh, and they say something essentially like, you know, our only way to the extraordinary is through the ordinary. Like our only way to the supernatural is through the natural. And so what we need to do is open our eyes to those kinds of daily things that are going on all around us. Because um, Beekner says, man, I think you have had these experiences that would cause you to say, yeah, in you are the words of eternal life. Uh, and he says, you know, we see them in our own churches. We see them. 
uh, even in the fumbling people and like the bumbling people in front of us who are like, you know, just ordinary, regular people. And then in a moment of grace or in a moment of kindness, you know, and it's something small and it's really easy to look over. But there we have experienced him. Right. And so I would say keep our eyes open. And it's not anything that I can prove to you or explain to you. And I also don't need like, why would I try to like prove or explain being in love with a person who is entirely lovely? Like, I don't need to defend that. That's just that's the way it is. And so I can only point you to it. Um, and then the last thing I would say is this. It is I see a kind of dialectic tension between the Pharisees and the disciples, meaning like a, a tension where the truth exists and kind of holding two opposite things together. And that is like. The Pharisees are searching the scriptures, and I don't want to tell people not to do that. You definitely should, because we need scriptures to, like, anchor the experiences that we have. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, if it's all just here I am in my study, figuring everything out, right, then you, be, you can be quickly become like a, a head case in multiple senses of the word. Uh, and you have nothing when it gets really confusing or when it gets too much, you walk away. Right. Because all of your all of your capital was like invested in your ability to like scrutinize and search and understand. And ultimately, we come up against things that we just can't. Right. But on the other hand, it would be easy to hear me saying like, oh, well, you don't need any of that. You just need an experience. And if you have that, that's all you need. But it, but like it's I, I think they're still like our experiences still need to be rooted or tethered or flowing in some stream of some tradition, right? It's not like the disciples don't care about scripture. In fact, when they say you have the words of eternal life, that is itself a scripturally rooted idea, right? That's not just right. out of yep. nowhere. Right. And so somehow as faithful disciples who are going to like both puzzle over and scrutinize what Jesus says, and then at the end of the day, still also be able to say, yeah, where else are we going to go? We have to like... I don't, I don't know. We have to do the David Bentley Hart thing of uh, live in those experiences and then also or, or like have the debates and whatever, but make sure that they stay responsible to these moments of wonder and experience that we've had. Oh, good gracious. I, How well said. There are 20 billion things I would like to keep saying and reading for everybody, but we got to I'm, I'm about to reclaim the title, I think. Right, Brent? <laughs> uh, yep. Yep. I think uh, so. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see man. how it comes out in the edit, but uh, I don't know if I can save you from this one. That's okay. I don't mind <laughs> if I if I if I uh, can get Marty to be emotionally vulnerable on the podcast with everybody. Then I don't care how long I talk for. It's worth hey, it. you don't you're not allowed to like call back to it and point it a, to it. That's that no that itself was a beautiful thing, Marty. That was a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. A after that, I was like, well, I don't have anything to share. <laughs> Man, and I would just think. Sorry, Brent. That's that's fine. I would encourage everybody like spend some time thinking about try to if it's passing and unremembered, try to remember it. Or if it was just through an everyday normal experience of a person, it, name that person. Remember that thing. Like keep a list of those things, uh, so that we can keep ourselves tethered to the one who has the words of eternal life. There, I'm done preaching. Love it. Well, I'm going to put that uh, Heschel book, I Asked for Wonder. I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put Prototype in the show notes. Uh, also, as we were talking about the distinction of like childishness and childlikeness, I was thinking back to our episode with Mandy Smith and her book, Unfettered. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the same ideas. So I'll also give you the uh, David Bentley Hart book to put in there for those who are more like big brain philosophy inclined. <laughs> there you go. 
uh okay well that'll do it for this episode we'll we'll see we'll see where reed lands um if you want to get if you want to get hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon i'm at yibcb uh reed is on the bama slack so yeah i am def- find definitely there. hop on there uh and then uh of course you can find more details about the show at bamaonestabshop.com so thanks for joining us on the bama podcast we'll talk to you again soon Dude, you're gonna be you're gonna be like with you're gonna be in within a minute or two okay. of the top. I really actually was hoping not to, but I mean, honestly, I felt like that last part of the discussion. We I and I'm sorry, Brent, like I didn't even get to hearing anything from you. I would love to have heard any personal things from you, but it was man. It's totally fine. Gosh, good stuff. Good job, Marty. Proud of you. Way to go there. Whatever. <laughs>